welcome back to the Cory Doctorow podcast, heading into the end of the year where I find myself back at my desk between two tour stops on the East Coast. This is a mystery that my publisher has not explained for some reason. I've come home from New York for like three days before going to Chapel Hill, North Carolina. But the good news is that you can catch me in Chapel Hill, North Carolina at Flyleaf Books on December the 5th. I will then be online to give a morning keynote for the Geneva Dialogue on December the 7th. And I think that's it for my public events for the rest of December. I, as you know, have been out on tour with my new novel, The Lost Cause, and there's some great news. It is a USA Today national bestseller, and I was just down at Book Soup here in Los Angeles and West Hollywood, where they fulfill the signed order copies for my Kickstarter, and I was looking at their bestseller table, and it is their number one fiction bestseller right now. So it is doing great, and thanks to you for talking about it. I will be back on the mic next Sunday, back from North Carolina, and I believe I'm going to be able to rope my kid into doing our annual daddy-daughter podcast with a song and everything. She is now 15, going on 16, just got her learner's permit. I don't know how much longer I'm going to be able to convince her to do these things. Maybe, you know, when she goes off to university, we'll keep doing them on Zoom, or maybe she'll be like, Dad, that's corny, I don't want to do it anymore. But for now... I'm pretty sure we're going to get a daddy-daughter podcast out of her for 2023. Okay, so on to this week's podcast, because there's lots to do. We're off to get a Christmas tree, and I've got to review the new Francis Spufford novel, which is really good. Watch for that on Pluralistic this week. So I'm going to read to you my latest Locus column. It's a column called Don't Be Evil. It's tempting to think of The Great in Shittening, in which all the internet services we enjoyed and came to rely upon became suddenly and irreversibly terrible, as the result of moral decay. That is, it's tempting to think that the people who gave us the old good internet did so because they were good people, and the people who enshittified it did so because they are shitty people. But the services that define the old good internet weren't designed or maintained by individuals. They were created by institutions, mostly for-profit companies, but also non-profits, government and military agencies, and academic and research facilities. Institutions are made up of individuals, of course, but the thing that makes an institution institutional is that no one person can direct it. The actions of an institution are the result of its many individual constituent parts both acting in concert and acting against one another. In other words, institutional action is the result of its individuals resolving their conflicts. Institutional action is the net result of wheedling, horse trading, solidarity, skullduggery, power moves, trickery, coercion, rational argument, love, spite, ferocity, and indifference among the institution's members. But of course, not all members of the institution are created equal. The CEO's personal assistant might be able to change the location of a key meeting in an online calendar and send a hapless exec to the wrong room at a key juncture in an institutional crisis, thus facilitating a palace coup. But the CEO can just fire the personal assistant. Tech 
has always included people who wanted to make a better internet, one where users enjoyed the technological self-determination to choose from among a wide variety of services, to start their own rival service, or to use plugins and mods to alter how a service works. Many's the mid-2000s blogger who used an ad blocker and expected their readers to have one as well, even as their bosses stamped their feet in frustration at the lost revenue these users represented. Tech has always included people who wanted to enshittify the internet to transfer value from the internet's users to themselves. The wide open internet, defined by open standards and open protocols, confounded those people. Any gains they stood to make for making a service you loved worse had to be offset against the losses they'd suffer when users went elsewhere. It follows, then, that as it got harder for users to leave those services, it got easier to abuse users. Every institutional action can be thought of as a victory lap for the winner of an internal struggle. The enshittification of the services we once loved and still rely on represents a series of victories for the forces of evil over the forces of good. A victory for the people who want to use the internet to trap us over the people who want to use the internet to set us free. As it got harder for users to leave online services, it got easier to abuse users. How do you make it harder for users to leave online services? Well, for starters, you can reduce the number of services that exist, period. Facebook bought Instagram and WhatsApp with the explicit intent of reducing options for disaffected Facebook users. As Mark Zuckerberg infamously quipped, it is better to buy than to compete. You can also reduce the likelihood that users will discover alternative services. As I write this in September 2023, Google is in court defending itself against antitrust charges brought by the Department of Justice, who accuse the company of spending tens of billions of dollars every year so that Google searches the default on platforms like Safari, Firefox, and Samsung. Google lights a whole-ass Twitter's worth of money on fire every year to make sure that you never try another search engine. Or you can make leaving a service more expensive. Amazon locks every audiobook you buy to its Audible platform forever, forcing publishers to accept its digital rights management wrappers, which can't be removed under penalty of law, and which limit Audible playback to players Amazon has approved, and block playback on competing platforms. Users who can't leave a platform might try to make things a little better. For example, they might install an ad blocker, One in four web users has installed a blocker, making it, in the words of Doc Searles, the largest consumer boycott in history. This means that companies that lock their users in still have to contend with the possibility that their trapped users will take some action to make their lives better. Use an alternative client, a tracker blocker, or some other mod that claws back value that enshittifiers have taken away. And so, enshittifiers sought out ways to ban this conduct. Using a mix of copyright, patent, trademark, trade secrecy, and other IP, the tech platforms made it illegal to push back against the encroaching walls. There is a long-standing debate within tech policy circles about what IP means and whether it means anything at all. But in the context of enshittification, IP has a single crisp meaning, 
any policy that lets me reach beyond the walls of my business and exert control over the conduct of my competitors, critics, and customers. Add it all together, the lack of competitors, the barriers to discovering which competitors exist, the deliberately imposed pain on leaving a service, and the criminalization of self-help measures. And it comes to this. As it got harder for users to leave online services, it got easier to abuse users. And this, an institution's actions are victory laps for the winners of internal struggles. Once and still, there were and are people at Google who thought that the internet should be a force for liberation, not extraction. People who treated don't be evil as a pole star, not an empty slogan. What changed? Not those people. What changed was the force of their argument. It's wrong to enshittify our product was never going to consistently keep a company from turning to the bad. Sure, it works from time to time, like when Google founder and Soviet refugee Sergey Brin unilaterally pulled the company out of China after he was confronted with the fact that the Chinese intelligence services were hacking Chinese Gmail users to figure out who to round up and stick into a gulag. But it doesn't work consistently. Brin and his co-founder, Larry Page, introduced their new search engine to the world in 1998 with a paper called The Anatomy of a Large-Scale Hypertextual Web Search Engine, in which they wrote, We believe the issue of advertising causes enough mixed incentives that it is crucial to have a competitive search engine that is transparent and in the academic realm. Long before Don't Be Evil, Page and Brin were writing that advertising-supported search would always degrade. And when the company went public in 2004, Page and Brin published an owner's manual for Google shareholders, in which they explained their intention to permanently retain a majority of the company's voting shares in order to, quote, advance the company's core values. Here you have the founders of the firm who, from day one, explained how their own mixed motives could lead their product into enshittification, who went to extraordinary lengths to ensure that they would never have to yield to anyone else's voting majority, and who still turned their empire into a pile of shit, where far more is spent to ensure that no one will ever try another product than is spent to ensure that their own product would compare favorably to rivals. If Brin and Page lost the argument, what chance did their employees have? Think of enshittification as being preceded by an argument. Some people say we should extract this surplus. It will make our bosses happy, make our shareholders richer, and increase our bonuses. When the people on the other side of that argument said, if we do what you suggest, it will make our product worse, and it will cost us more money than it will make us, they tend to win the argument. But when all they can say is, yes, this will make us more money, but it will make the product worse, they forever lose the argument. The elimination of competition and the ensuing capture of regulation removed the discipline imposed by the fear of customers defecting as the product degraded. The harder it is for users to leave a service, the easier it is for the factions within a company to best their rivals in the debate over whether they should be allowed to make the service worse. That's what changed. That's what's different. Tech didn't get worse because the techies got worse. Tech got worse because the conditions of the external world made it easier for the worst techies to win 
arguments. A new good internet is possible and worth fighting for. After all, the internet is a powerful and crucial force in our lives, a single conduit for free speech, a free press, free association, and access to education, family, civics, politics, health, employment, romance, and more. The enshittified giants of the internet may be beyond redemption. Perhaps they have become so corrupted, piled up so much sin and callous disregard for human thriving, that all that is left is to burn them to the ground. Make no mistake, there are plenty of people within those institutions who pine for a new good internet, an internet that is a force for human liberation. To help those people win their arguments, to win the arguments with them, we need to make sure that their point is never merely, this is wrong, but also, this will cost us more than we can possibly gain from it. All right, I'll be back next week with, I hope, a daddy-daughter podcast. If you're in or around Chapel Hill, North Carolina, I hope I'll see you on Tuesday at Flyleaf Books. And otherwise, I hope you have a great week. In fact, I hope you have a great week, even if you're in North Carolina. All right, talk to you later. You've been listening to the Cory Doctor Podcast, licensed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, US 3.0. Or as Woody Guthrie put it in another context, this song is copyrighted in the US under seal of copyright 154085 for a period of 28 years, and anyone caught singing it without our permission will be a mighty good friend of ours, because we don't give a dern. Publish it, write it, sing it, swing to it, yodel it, we wrote it, that's all we wanted to do. Many thanks to John Taylor Williams for mastering. That's Rynex Studio, W-R-Y-N-E-C-K Studio at gmail.com. John Taylor Williams is a full-time self-employed audio engineer, producer, composer, and sound designer. In his free time, he makes beer, jewelry, odd musical instruments, and furniture. He likes to meditate, to read, and to cook. Talk to you next week.